It is Leap Day 2024, and the MAD Podcast is back. Join us every week for conversations with leaders across the machine learning, AI, and data landscape with Matt Turk, partner at FirstMark Capital. Today, we welcome Des Trainer, co-founder of Intercom. In this great conversation full of insights on AI products, Matt and Des talk about Intercom's decision to go all in on generative AI, the interplay between AI and human customer service agents, and entrepreneurial lessons learned over the last decade of building Intercom. As always, if you love the show, hit the follow button to get the latest episodes every week. Now let's jump in. Hey, Des, welcome. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited for this conversation. Been looking forward to it. Uh, Intercom obviously is a very well-known company in tech circles and, and beyond a leader in the customer service uh, software for a number of years now. Uh, but one part of that's been particularly interesting to me uh, has been uh, basically the last year uh, when I saw you guys um, come out very quickly uh, with a generative AI product in the early part of 2023. So um, I felt like that would be a really interesting place to start. What, what happened then and how quickly, what enabled you to make the transition or the evolution to a new generative AI product so quickly? Was that a question of prepared mind uh, because you had been doing some AI before or, or was it like a, a recognition that the world was completely changing? I think it was a combination. So uh, what Practically, we I think our whole industry had been playing with the like the the playgrounds that OpenAI were offering, and Fergal, who's our like VP of AI, uh, he had been keeping an eye on it. And then obviously November thirtieth, twenty twenty two, I guess, ChatGPT dropped, and I think that was you know it only took you know four or five back and forths with the chatbot uh, ChatGPT to realize we had crossed some sort of uh, some perceptual cliff where like now people still could start talking to things and getting real answers. Fergal played with it that evening. He posted out a tweet. Um, he messaged me. We met the following morning. And we all kind of like played with played with like what was now possible. Uh, and we were pretty blown away. Uh, it was very obvious at the time that like, it was going to have short-term, very, uh, very useful things for CS agents. So that evening, I had a call with Owen. Um, or it was the evening time because he's in San Francisco and I'm in Dublin. And... Um, I, you know, I kind of outlined what we had seen and own, you know, had that sort of, um, you know, you, you kind of need a sort of foundry intuition for this type of thing. He was like, let's go all in. Like, you know, uh, why, what are we waiting for? And, and on Monday we started work. We released our first features in January, I think it was, Inbox AI. So doing things like doing classical CS jobs, like summarization immediately. All, you know, all this has become commonplace since then, but we were like out with it pretty early. And then when ChatGPT4, when we got our first access to that in, in uh, March, that was when we started to realize, shit, this thing, whatever with helping agents, this thing can actually do the job of some agents. Uh, so we started to build out what became Finn, the uh, the sort of the chatbot that we have launched, which is putting up some crazy numbers these days. Like we have like thousands of people using it, it's doing millions of full resolutions for people. But it was very much a... Clearly, we've crossed some sort of breakthrough. We don't know how. We don't. We still don't know where it ends, right? But uh, we, it was it was an obvious moment, a sort of tectonic shift in what's possible. And I think genuinely, customer service is very much in like the kill zone of AI or whatever. I think it's really uh, you know it's a very vulnerable space if you don't move with the times. So we felt that like a, an urgent need to get on it. And, and we've always been a kind of fast moving product org, but this really put us to our test. Yeah, and what what makes it so that it's in the kill zone? Good question. It's basically that large language models are really good at conversational back and forth. Uh, what I would call a give this, answer that type workflow, which is read this and answer the following question. Um, and disambiguation, just generally speaking, what do you mean? Clarification, the pushing and prodding. A lot of previous models we played it would give up or tap out somewhere and it'd not be useful. Whereas ChatGPT was both pretty quick and very good at, at like conversational problem solving effectively. That's what a lot of like, not all customer service, but there's a good chunk of undifferentiated customer service that falls into that area. Stuff like, how do I reset my password? It's not like a brand building opportunity from which you can establish a long-term relationship. It's just a very answer to damn question. And the best version of that question is not an artisanal, hand-typed, well-crafted, beautifully worded, eloquent letter. It's, here's the link to reset your password. And people actually care about instancy more than they care about like a, you know, let's just say the personal tone in those types of things. So, uh, so I just think 
there's a there was it was very obvious at the very start there's a certain chunk of the work that's definitely doable and over the last while we've just been expanding that chunk to include things like you know better answers better disambiguation multilingual you know and we've got more stuff coming throughout this year that will again just increase the workload what were we on the topic of that evolution in, in 2023 almost from an organizational perspective like how did that translate um you know you, you guys have been at this for a number of years now i believe the company was started in 2011 and then 2023, so many years later, uh, you're deciding to go all in on a new technology. Um, there's one thing I've, I've, I've seen that I uh, thought was particularly interesting uh, on the Intercom website at intercom.io slash believe. You basically have a manifesto which uh, seems like it was signed by just about everyone in the company, if I, if I you know, from, from the looks of it. Uh, so was that that? It was like, like this big rallying cry where, where um, you know, uh, you all decided that the whole company was evolving towards the, this new goal? That's exactly what I was. It's like the manifesto was literally what we believe about the space and it took us quite a while like it took us quite a while to distill these things because so much was changing uh but you know we we have our sort of what we call our big beliefs which is that like cs is in need of a significant upgrade um that like you know uh, ai is going to be the thing to do it there'll be winners and losers etc and uh like we've been distilling this manifesto for like two years as we've been kind of progressively learning what ai will and won't do and where humans are involved and aren't involved and um and ultimately us putting it out there was us where our way of telling the industry right if you choose to go with intercom now this is what this is what underpins everything we build everything we do is, is set to advance this idea here so it was really like a kind of the crystallization after maybe a year or a year and a half of consideration of what the hell we're all about and you know look i, I think one of the many things that makes this conversation particularly interesting is that uh, as i mentioned a minute ago you guys have been at it for a little while so you're you're a really interesting example of a company that um, had an existing product and many many customers and then sort of uh, depending on how you look at it, either pivoted or added a new uh, series of functionality. Uh, maybe for, for, for uh, you know, full context for uh, listeners here, um, what, what was the product before uh, the, this evolution towards AI? Yeah, sure. So uh, the very short summary is when we started building Intercom, it was a way of, we called it a customer communication platform, it was a way of talking to your customers. Generally speaking, People talk to their customers usually for three reasons, sales, marketing, and support. And then you can add on the ancillary stuff like research or success or whatever. So for quite a while, we existed as a broad tool that could be used for any of those jobs. Um, when Owen, who's our CEO, returned, he came back. One of the points of his plan, which we can get into as a kind of you know, uh, reaction to the you know 2021 days and all that. But one of the key ideas was that we have to pick one job, uh, one specific, sorry, uh, how to say, category and become the dominant best product become an irreplaceable uh, category winner and our chosen area was customer support so that's where we were going ai we, we had always had uh, sort of work in ai we had a product called resolution bot which was like a a how would you say a version of you know fin but you had to hand train it you had to say here's five examples of a question and here's what the right answer should be that type of like you know that you know bots have gone through many eras and that was just a, sort of the prior era of bot, bots when AI presented itself, it was quite clearly the future of the space that we wanted to dominate. So it, was, like, it might look smart. I think we, we moved fast, but I, I genuinely think that like there was no other option. I think were we sitting here without an AI strategy today, we'd be deeply worried. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very clear what's going to happen to most industries, but very clearly to customer service. So I think uh, we went from like general purpose broad tool for talking to customers to being a CS tool to being an AI first CS tool. And uh, AI first um, is a question of like how much development effort you spend on AI or is basically what you're saying that you're completely flipping the logic of customer service, meaning that people's interaction, initial interaction will be with AI first and then humans will be a fallback? We have this idea that like uh, if AI can answer the question, uh, it should, and we spend a lot of time making sure that AI, our AI fin is aware of what it can and can't answer, how certain it is. The logic for that is quite simply, an instant answer is almost always what the customer wants, and they will sacrifice a lot for an instant answer. And if you look at your own online search behavior, you go to a website, if you don't get an answer to the thing you're wondering in like four seconds, you close the tab and go back to your Google search and jump down a link or whatever. Like that's just the way customers behave. So instancy is a really valuable thing. 
so we, we say AI first from that perspective, but there are a few other perspectives that we think about AI first from like when we're building something where we're trying to capture a new workflow, let's say we're rebuilding our reporting. The mindset now is, can AI do this? So let's say a classic customer support leader job might be like, what new issues are occurring in our, in our, in our volume of like support at the moment? There are loads of ways to do that, but right now we think about how can we do that from an AI-first perspective? How can we get out, get ahead? How can we preempt the, the desire and actually automatically surface the answer before it's even been asked? We, it, it's very much both uh, how we think about our support model, but it's also kind of how I think the, the future startups just need to think. Most of the things that we do online are like judgment calls, criteria, selection from a set. They're like, uh, you know, maybe some degree of search or, or like, uh, you know, rag sort of type stuff. But ultimately, AI can do it all. And you should first ask yourself, does the UI, the buttons, the dropdowns, the whatever it is I'm designing, does that make search, sorry, does that make sense in an era of pure like, you know, uh, AI where you can literally just say the thing you want and see if you can get it? So I think there's a mindset shift that a lot of like specifically designers and product managers, along with engineers, need to get into, which is understanding that. We shouldn't be approaching AI from just simply how can we automate a task or how can we automate a little step or like, you know, how can we summarize this paragraph or you have to actually look at how can we automate the outcome? If we can automate the outcome, let's start there. If not, let's start at the workflow. If we can't automate the workflow, then let's try and automate the steps. If we can't automate the steps, then let's try. You, know, you, should, you should start with the big picture and come downwards. And worst case scenario, you can only automate a few steps or one workflow. But I think there's a lot of product areas that are going to be like, honestly, deeply disrupted by what's possible with software now that wasn't always possible. And I think it'll play out in loads of ways. The, the UI styles that we choose, will we go towards chat UI as opposed to like natural or like sorry, old school pointy clicky UI? Uh, will, you know, workflows, did it even make sense? So like, you know, I, I've cited this example before, but I have a friend who runs an advertising optimization startup and he, he's quickly realized most of the reasons people log into his product aren't necessary in an era of AI. The AI can generate the ads, optimize the ads, publish the ads, turn off the ones that aren't working, find the winners, iterate on the winners. There's very little reason for a human to log in other than to get the report. But even at that, the report can be mailed out automatically. So you, you start to ask yourself deep questions about like, what is my product? And that's that's what I really consider to be like the AI first mindset. So we both we both see customer support as being AI first, as in if the AI can deal with, deal with it with a zero second answer, let's do that first. But also, I, I just think it's how software needs to be built from here on. What does that mean, and what have you learned in terms of UX? Um, so you want to give uh, the 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 users, or your customers' users, um, you know, a choice in terms of like how they navigate and how they get to the answer. Um, is the idea that uh, you can almost like pick AI versus a human? You can fast forward to human directly. Uh, how does that how does that all work? And any early lessons? In our manifesto, we say like we believe the future of support will be humans plus AI. And what we mean there is the AI will, uh, so basically some conversations will be answered entirely comprehensively by AI. How do I reset my password? Here's how. Uh, how do I get a refund to click this link? That type of thing. Just a complete answer. Customer gets exactly what they want and they leave. The next set will be things that the AI will attempt to answer, but ultimately might fail over to a human. And then some, the AI will just be like, I'm not touching that. It sounds like a sales query. I'm going to hand that straight over to a human. Right? So that's the first piece. The second is there's a symbiotic relationship between the, the, like the bots and the humans, if you like, right? You're the AI and the human, which is when are, you know, humans are in the inbox, the AI can help them. It can do things like summarization. It can like, you like look stuff up for them and all that sort of stuff. We're, we're investing a lot there. But then also the humans help the AI because when when you you know one of the features of Finn is you can go through all the answers it's given and be like oh you got that one wrong let me teach you and you can give Finn new facts to learn from so that it doesn't make its mistakes again so I think you, you'll see this kind of relationship where like humans do some direct work bots do some direct work bots help humans humans help bots that's how the whole system works for a human like for a visitor on a let's just say a user of one of our customers. Our, our goal is we don't give them any of that complexity. We just ask them, like, how can we help? They, they say what they want. And if we can do it, we do it. If we can't do it, we ask some disambiguation questions, maybe some follow-up to really learn what it is. If we can't work it out, we hand it over to a human. When the humans try to answer it, we can surface relevant articles. We can do all the stuff that would actually help. But uh, we really want to make sure, like, we always at Intercom of, you know, one of our, like, you know, you, when we started in 2011, the, our big first technical push was, like, messaging. People got used to messaging, you know, iMessage launched, Snapchat launched, Facebook Messenger. So we had a lot, we basically built a messenger that could sit inside your product. 
Uh, we've always thought about this from being, how do we make it as natural as possible to talk to a business or to talk to a website or a shop or an online store? And so we designed for both sides of the conversation. We care deeply that, are, that our customers, their customers have a brilliant experience through Intercom too. And that's why we'd be hesitant to like offer any upfront, do you want to talk to the deeply blorpy robot or do you want to talk to the human you can do that you can set up that that filtering if you want in intercom but it's not our default mode our default mode would rather be say the thing you're trying to do and we're going to help you do it and we don't like don't worry about the details that that's a that's an execution problem on the back end what are you learning so far in terms of like how people react to ai right so seen from uh, the perspective of users you know i think there's a little bit of a ptsd that accumulated over the years with you know chatbots that never give you exactly the right answer um what, what so how you how do you overcome that yeah you're totally correct so like there's like been generations of shit chatbots basically the first generation was like was a uh, was like just button button powered bots like are you trying to do x or y x how are you trying to do x one two three one like it was very much like a phone tree but in a messenger um that was Gen One. Gen Two was then a little bit of AI, where it's like type your query and I'll try and guess what you're what you're what you're saying, and that was the Gen Two, and that's what our resolution bot product was. And then this new generation, I think people's behavior has changed a little bit for two reasons. One, we're like you know ten years into it, but two, like ChatGPT and then obviously Gemini, and who knows what will happen when like Gemini goes on Android phones and Apple finally launched their thing. But I do think people are starting to realize bots are good, like as in people play with ChatGPT and their expectations are growing. So when we first launched and people thought we were a bot, they, you know, people drop immediately into what we call bot speak. So it might be like, hi, Matt, I, I, I ordered the T-shirt two weeks ago and I'd like to really blah. And as soon as they see a bot replying, they say T-shirt refund, please. You know, because they've given up on all the English or whatever. The, they talk but machine to it. They talk machine to it. It's the same way, the same way we all learned to eventually talk machine to Google. So you know, you got good at Googling by doing that. Uh, I think what we're going to, what we have seen a bit is like, because the conversation history is like, there can be humans and bots in the same conversation. There can be handover in both directions and all that sort of stuff. I think you're, you're seeing a bit more people just, just saying like, they've gone back to the whole, I will tell you what you need to know. And I'll trust when I enter it, you're going to figure it out. And I think that has taken a while, but I think we're going to see a kind of broad spread adoption. We're about to launch, say, Finn working over email. So people send emails in. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out because obviously people tend to write emails with a degree more boilerplate or formality than they do messaging or text speak. Uh, so we'll be curious to see how Finn performs in that dynamic. And, uh, you know, it, it tries to match tone and style as best as it can to like to the, the inbound message. So we'll see how that plays out. But uh, yeah, I'm, 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 it's... The biggest learning for me has been how quickly the public have gotten on board with the idea that uh, chatbots work now. You know, yeah, we're starting to you know, Yeah, and like Microsoft and Google have been helping us out a lot by like running all these ads and doing all these launches to sort of say, hey, bots aren't shit anymore, you know? So um, let's go behind the scenes a little bit. I think part of the reason you all were able to launch Finn so quickly and impressively uh, was that it was built on top of um, OpenAI, I believe uh, 3.5 GPT Turbo at, at the time, which leads us into the, you know, everyone's favorite conversation around um, thin wrappers and, and all the things. And I've, I've heard you talk um, about a, a concept of a thick wrapper, which I thought was a very elegant way of, of phrasing it. So walk us through the journey of, um, you know, working with uh, with GPT and then what you all built on top of it uh, that has made it a thick wrapper. Yeah, sure. So Finn's built on GPT-4, by the way. We've, we tried, we wanted to build on 3.5, but uh, it didn't, it's still, I remember back when we used to talk about hallucinations, like 4 was the, was the sort of the perceptual change for us in terms of trust and reliability. Um, what's the difference between a thin wrapper and a thick wrapper? Like, I think there are there are. Um, I mean, when I when I like you know I also invest in companies and I talk to companies in my portfolio and a lot of them are kind of building these thin wrapper solutions and I think it comes down to where do you want your differentiation and are you relying on this as a motor or are you relying on this as just being basically an, an extra nice feature like summarize this text like it doesn't matter if it's adopted or not or whatever. So, but like there is no end of given this document answer this question type products in the market and I think a lot of people will confuse that with doing the job of customer service because it looks the same right but i think uh in practice if you're actually running a real customer service team 
you have a lot of things you care about. You care about, say, trust. You don't want your bot to go off topic. You don't want it to have a political opinion. You don't want it to express anything other than what the hell the customer is asking about. You care about reliability. You care about accuracy. You care about like uh, interaction with humans. So if you don't know, can you hand over to a human and can the human hand back to you, etc.? You care about reporting, like as in what, what, what answers are going badly? What answers are going good? Does the customer satisfied in the far side of this? Disambiguation. Oh, like the, the search itself. So in retrieval augmented generation, like the retrieval piece is like no joke. And we've, we've been doing a lot of work to sort of fine tune the retrieval models here to improve the performance so we can actually get really good answers. Then you've got the whole multis, multimodal, multilingual, multi-channel working across WhatsApp, text message or whatever. Like when you try to address all of those constraints, you end up building a lot of software that goes beyond the sort of like the, the GPT's style. I built a thing that read a PDF and now I can answer four questions. Like that is true, but that's like, if you think you've built a sort of a CS agent because you've built that, I think you probably just should brush up a little bit on a, on what customer service is actually all about. The job is to improve the customer experience. You need to be certain that your agents are doing well. You need to be able to measure it, report on it, uh, like correct it, all that sort of stuff. There's a lot of software that has to be built behind the scenes that goes beyond just to like, give this answer that. Mm -hmm. And your thesis is that um, in addition to obviously addressing customer needs, which is the, 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 the top priority for, for all the obvious reasons, um, is that what gives defensibility to a company, you know, customer service is like this super exciting area because it's a very obvious need. Uh, equally, it's a crowded area because, you know, a lot of people understand how important that it is. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, for example, the launch just this last week of Sierra AI, which is Brett Taylor's uh, company. Brett Taylor had, you know, former co-CEO of Salesforce and uh, now on the board and perhaps chairman, I think, of OpenAI. Um, what does the future look like uh, if uh, a number of companies are built on the top of the same models uh, in terms of defensibility and differentiation? I think all of our work is pretty model agnostic. We use four because it's best, but like the very second there's a better model out there, we'll do it. I think people talk a lot about like technical differentiation uh, these days, and I'm a bit I personally get growing in sort of skepticism that it's actually like that doable. The era of SaaS is an era of like right click view source. You know, it, you know, ultimately, like if, if there's a single thing you've done, other people can do it. The job is to build a brand around having the best product. And to do that, you often you have to have the freshest tech, the best designed tech, and you need to consistently be there such that when customers choose you, they choose you not just based on where you are today, but based on your product trajectory and momentum. And I think when people adopt Stripe, or linear or intercom or slack or whatever back back in the day it wasn't because they were the only payments platform or project management platform and it wasn't because like you know in, in say like stripe you could argue might be slightly different maybe they had some commercial agreements that were hard to get but like linear they're building software like you can look at the ui and you can infer what the what's going on behind the scenes it's just really hard to build it on thing and to build it and, and if you do start building it today the chances are when you ship your version of it they'll have moved on substantially so i think there's like you know the, the nature of moats and software, it, it, to my mind, is the following. You you have the best product and you grow your brand of, of that. And then you attempt to transubstantiate the like best brand into things like a community of people who care deeply and know how to use your product into the, into a software ecosystem that cares about strong integrations with your product, et cetera. Uh, maybe you build a, have a platform play or whatever, but you, you know, the... The idea that like um, that like you know uh, some other company can't look at and copy our inbox design, you know that's been happening for years. Our all of our all of the stuff we've built, honestly, over the years has been copied by various different chatbot incumbents. Most of them aren't still around because it's a hard thing to sustain. Uh, but that's that's the nature of software. So I think, and then the bigger question of where is the moat in AI? I think we're still trying to figure that out. I you know we're experimenting a lot internally with like training our own uh, our own models. We're doing all that sort of work that you'd guess we're doing behind the scenes. But uh, I think ultimately, I, you know, in the absence of any like unique patent that you're going to sue everyone else for, or whatever, having the best product always is probably the best strategy you have when it comes to defending your position. And uh, just um, going back to the the, the the question of the fundamental uh, foundational model that you use. So wh where are you in that exploration of um, GPT-4 versus Claude versus Llama versus building your own thing? And how do you think about Mistral, it? Mistral, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think um, 
look we care a lot about using the best product out there we don't we don't feel the need to be like checking it every week because you know frankly you, you might forget to build the rest of the software that i i uh, enumerated earlier but um we have a torture test of like thousands of questions and scenarios that we run any given model through. To run it through is, is, is you, do, you can do it like in a re reasonably automated may, but, way, but there's a lot of like human eyeballing to really make sure that we're we're assessing things correctly too. Uh, so given a model, let's just say Anthropics, Claude and Mistral and Llama and OpenAI4 and whatever we might, be, we might roll ourselves, we look at the performance against all of these things. And, and we, it's a, there's obviously like trust, reliability, accuracy, uh, all that sort of stuff are like, they're our first concerns. Can it actually do the job? The secondary concerns then become things like speed and like cost and all that sort of stuff as well. At, at the moment, like we're on four and we're happy there, but we're not, we have not moved into an optimization mode here yet. Like as in, at some stage, somebody might talk to us about anything from like margins to speed or performance, or whatever. And that's when we might start saying, hey, right, okay, given that we've kind of built all the stuff we wanted to build around this, let, now let's look at like, you know, swapping in different engines and seeing if we can find the fastest one or the one that we can offer at the lowest price point or whatever. But I think that that's a second order thing. I, I would encourage anyone who's trying to do the, um, you know, it's, it's basically one of those explore then exploit. We are still deeply exploring how much we can transform the nature of CS with AI. When we're confident we finish that exploration, there will be an exploitation phase where we start saying, right, let's turn the dials and let's get this really fine-tuned for speed, for price, for all the variables you might think about, even just stuff like hosted in the right region, data governance, all that sort of stuff as well. So like that's uh, they're all to come. Yeah, is a version of that future rather than the hard swap, some concept of router where in real time you'd send different queries to different models? It's possible, or like a, you know, we I wouldn't rule that out. I also wouldn't rule out like a, so, like different features go through different go. You know, depending on, the, on what we're asking, we might have, we might look for the cheaper calls or the more expensive ones or slower ones or whatever. There's also other stuff like a, would we let customers choose? Um, would we let customers bring their own? Uh, like you know, there's loads of versions of that. Like we've we, we've built it in a sort of like a high cohesion, low coupling way where you can hot swap if you want. This the, the challenge we have is just. Um, we put a lot of work into making sure that we're certain on things like trust, reliability, et cetera. Uh, if customers are going to uh, you know, hot swap in their version or if, like the reason we wouldn't just overnight flip from one to the other is because, you know, there's like reputational considerations on behalf of our customers. We want to make sure that, you know, that these things don't ever do anything we, would, we don't want them to do. So we put a lot of work into guard railing them and we just, that's why we wouldn't necessarily be running with a bank of 10 of them because to own any given one of them in any period, it does an ongoing uh, work to it. It's not for free. Yeah, very much on that topic. Um, obviously, the elephant in the room for um, all enterprise use cases of generative AI is hallucination, right? It's, it's one thing yeah. if uh, you know you ask ChatGPT to write poetry and they hallucinate. It's a whole different thing if you have a, a customer experiencing a mission critical need. Um, what kind of uh, work have you all done so far? You mentioned the term safeguard. Uh, you mentioned RAG. Uh, what have you done so far to limit that problem? We, as I said, we have like genuinely a very exhaustive uh, torture test that we put any given model through that is almost designed to trick it into hallucinating and see where, where it'll fail. We've also done a lot of work in um, in, in getting the, the models to like report out on their own, um, uh, how would you say, certainty of the answer. Um, and we can then, that gives us our, ourselves a threshold where we say, hey, like we could have higher coverage, but we would do it at a cost of uh, more more like bad answers basically so it, we you know the things we care about are uh first of all we you know we wouldn't go the same reason we don't go with tree five we we take the obligations of our customers reputations quite seriously so we don't want to have hallucinations we put heaps of work into that a lot of the times uh when when, when finn gives bad answers it's not hallucination it's actually usually just bad content and it's, it's stale content in our customers' help centers uh, that's happened. Or somebody before, like somebody yesterday answered this question and they gave the wrong answer and now Finn thinks it's correct. So it's going with it or whatever. So you, that's where we have that idea of a human helping the AI. So a human logs in and fixes it. But there's a lot of work done to sort of guardrail, to certainty checks, so like to just threshold how confident Finn should be before it answers. And then uh, uh, there's obviously a very rich feedback loop too. Like if customers push back, Finn will take that as a sign that it didn't get it right and we'll surface that to the end user and be like, hey, we read this article and answered this question like this and the user thought it was wrong. What did we get wrong? And the, the human can be like, oh, shit, I better update the help center article or something like that. So like, we care deeply about this. The way I think about Finn in the lives of our, our customers who are customer service teams is that it, it should move them to being the, the, the answer questions for the first time 
because Finn has never seen it before, but also the last time, because once they've answered it, Finn has now seen it, and Finn should be able to answer all questions of that type, which kind of just changes the nature of it. Um, and like hallucinations are just far less likely in a world where Finn is kind of, I've seen everything every human has ever said and everything that's in the help center. It's really unlikely to have to invent new stuff or, or, or pull on any sort of creative thread because we're scoping it quite tightly to private docs, public docs, what's been said before by your own CS team, et cetera. So that kind of scoping means that it, it's not reaching deep into its own creativity, uh, and other models will claim higher coverage for this reason, by the way, like, which, which is just interesting. You can, if you're willing to tolerate worse answers, uh, you can hit a higher resolution rate, but that's, that's a very conscious trade-off that I think people aren't honest enough about. Uh, you know, if, if we tell Finn to just ha make it up no matter what, it would probably have more, have more hits, but just a lot more misses too, you know? How do you uh, think about customization on a per customer basis, uh, meaning, a, what do you do for each customer as you roll out the product? And B, after that, what do you enable customers to do themselves in terms of like controlling or configuring the bot? We have a few features launching in this area soon to customize things like branding and tone of voice and all that sort of stuff so people can really like make Finn speak like their team. So like a, a surf shop and a bank don't have to have the same language or whatever. Like, um, that's one piece. The majority of the area in which we customize is really just making sure that like the customers can bring all of their data sources. That's the thing that really matters here, in our opinion. Like given that given that we're doing RAG, right? We're not we're not yet building models per customer or tuning models per customer. We're doing RAG. Uh, so what are they, what we've spent a lot of time on is like most of our customers store all the information that needs to be known in Notion or Confluence or Guru or in random PDFs that are floating around or Google Drive. Finn can imbibe or like drink in all of those uh, to get the most comprehensive answer set. It can also read private docs and knows to not surface private docs to, to like end users, et cetera. So that's the way in which people mostly customize it is they just tell it as much as they can about their business. And then like the, the vector search kind of takes care of the rest. Um, we're like, when we think that we have tapped out in performance in our current setup, we, we, it might make sense, and I really say might because it's, it's hard to tell about what the future will hold, to start thinking about things like per user, either you know, like uh, weighting or tuning or, or models or any of those sort of things. It doesn't feel like that's the barrier today. And if uh, it feels like the barrier today is making sure that Finn can, you know, speak all languages across all channels and consume all content sources. And like, that's the, going back to this idea of a thick wrapper, that's the stuff that we really need to get great at. And we've been doing a lot in that space soon. Yeah, personalization obviously is uh, the holy grail and super interesting. Yeah. Uh, so without getting into sort of personalized AI, as of now, do you enable personalization? Meaning uh, if I show mm. back up uh, three weeks later, you will remember who I am, my history, that kind of stuff. Do you have like some kind of like underlying customer data platform where you store all of this? How does that work? Yeah, great question. So, uh, so Intercom is an actual CDP. We're kind of one of the first. We were out, out before Segment and all those with, with our version of this. Um, so, all our users store custom data on their users, uh, and it would be things like what price plan is Matt paying, and how many teammates has he, and how many files has he uploaded, or whatever it makes sense for your business. All that information is also fed to Finn uh, as well, and Finn can use all that as well. There's obvious sort of uh, value we get out of that. Like, so if it know if Finn knows that you're a premium customer, it can give you the answer to your question, assuming you're a premium customer. Like, so you know, Spotify has a different set of features for premium users than it does for regular. And if it knows Matt is like a premium user, it'll give Matt the right answer. Um, more generally, like uh, we think about personalization, I just I I'd sort of say there's like. There's levels of automation that we sort of work through. Like, you know, if you can think about this like the same way we went through, say, self-driving cars, right? You know, in the 80s, there was no automation. Today, there's a lot of automation. We're like maybe L4 or something like that. In support, you go from like no automation to maybe like old school bots to like um, LLM bots. Dynamic answers will, uh, you know, the idea of like looking up Matt, looking up Matt's information and giving Matt a specific thing. Then you can go a step further and be like, let's look up Matt inside Stripe and work out where his last invoice was. And let's answer a question based on that when he says, why was my credit card charged? All the way over to like, let's issue a refund to Matt because he expressed disconnect, uh, sorry, discontent with the service. 
uh, all the way up to like, let's proactively start a conversation with Matt, right? That's like the sort of the spectrum of how uh, how much automation we can build into the CS job. Personalization is one of those sort of steps that we want to get to, which is answer this question for Matt specifically, his order history, his refund, his account plan, uh, all that sort of stuff. That's absolutely on the roadmap. We'll have a lot more to say about that, uh, you know, within months or whatever. But um, does it like you know we have genuinely a, a sort of full spectrum of of how we're going to automate support to get from our current say 40, 50 percent total automation up to like maybe seventies, eighties, nineties, depending on the business. Okay, very cool. What, what does voice fit in? I, I saw you made an announcement around intercom phone. Mm -hmm. Is that is that is that in yeah. like a, a voice version of Finn? Is it different? No, actually, well, the first thing we have to build, because like there's two things everyone needs to know about Intercom. One is that we are a complete customer support platform. And then secondly, we have the best AI. And uh, we ran a funny billboard about that. But the reason we had to build phone was just because people wanted to people wanted to consolidate onto Intercom, but they couldn't because we didn't have a phone solution. So the first thing we do is just build a phone solution. But the question you're, to you're talking about, which is the one everyone's excited about, is like, will Finn answer your phone calls? And the answer is like, not today. But absolutely, voice is like a, voice is still a huge amount of support volume. Is phone calls or like uh, or like increasingly with like uh, Gen Z voice notes as well are, are becoming quite popular as well. Um, we've played with everything you'd guess, Synthesia and their synthetic bots. We've played with Eleven Labs and their synthetic voices, etc. And in general, there's a there's an obvious path that we're going to get to here. I'd say the the reasons we're not building it right now. Uh, one is is like you know. I think it's not. It's basically not customer demand number one, but it's it, it's it will get there for sure. Uh, it's a the latency is a little bit of a problem in a phone call, and uh, like as in a good GPT four query might take three, four, five seconds, and that just makes for an awkward phone call. Now we've played with things like you know injecting filler, like hmm, great question, Matt. Let me have a think about that while I'm running over to the server and getting the answer. Okay, I've got it. You know, like that type of thing can work, but I suspect. I think that's just building the wrong thing. I think if we literally if we literally just sit back for a second, all these problems will correct themselves. So I would say, like voice from a point of view of robots answering uh, the phone and hearing your query and answering it as best as they can, and if not failing over to a human voice, I think that's all certainly going to happen. Don't have a stated time frame for it yet. Uh, transitioning a little bit into the business aspect of all of this, one question that's top of mind for, for many people is uh, cost and then the impact on gross margins if you're a business <coughs> if you're a business using uh, generative ai what have you learned so far it's definitely a valid concern like uh, an interesting mindset that we've had to adopt in intercom is like there are cool features then this is the first time my career this has been true there are cool features that we can't afford to build right so as an example like summarize every conversation intercom powers every month uh, that would be summarizing 500 million conversations a month that would bankrupt the company in some amount of years, right? Like it's 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 and we wouldn't be comfortable passing that cost directly onto our users. So it's definitely a like how much will this cost is a new sort of uh, step in our should we build it that just wasn't there before. Related to that, by the way, is so is latency because like these things are just slower than normal software. So you have to think about where and when you inject delays too. Uh, but so what have we learned aside from that? Like I think there's a few different things. Um, it's awesome that there are open source models coming up uh, that we believe we can hand over more and more of the workload to. We haven't really gone deep down that journey yet because, as I said, we're not really in a cost optimization mode, but we're definitely growing in confidence that we we do not have to pay the, the you know the full highest price uh, for every single call we make. That we have obvious paths to shedding the majority of that cost, or at least bringing it down to like CPU only, which would be like you know effectively you know in the same way we don't think about ECT units, we, we shouldn't have to think about that too, too much. The um, the other nice dynamic here is like there are there are lots of players. There's like you know there are like at the very least all of the big players have their own offering in the space, whether it's Google or Facebook or whatever, um, along with OpenAI. So there's a lot of pressure on the pricing. So even with us doing nothing, everything's gotten cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Uh, so we and that's without us actually doing any optimization ourselves. But all that said, it's um like there are. You know, when you work with large volumes of data, like we do with, say, conversations or like, the, you know, like billions of people have been or billions of unique entities have been in contact with Intercom through its history. It's like it's a very expensive query to say, oh, let's use some like chat UI to analyze the entire conversational history for our business. You know, that that's seriously expensive. Um, so the dynamic we have to find is 
don't just build shit because it's cool. Not that that was ever really a good idea, but it's really important in this case. You have to say, where are we displacing real work that already had a significant attach, uh, cost attached to it, where we can do it at substantially less? And in those cases, we are very justified in charging a reasonable price. So to give you a simple example, Finn charges 99 cent per answer. Uh, most uh, like most support reps effectively would cost you more than 99 cent per answer. Even for the, the like low end, how do I reset my password type things? It still takes you like a few minutes to do that and to close it and you know measure it and record it. So I think aligning price to value is really, really important. And then just getting the price point correct such that uh, such that you don't have a broken dynamic where like people are resistant to using a feature because it's a bit expensive. You need to avoid all of that. It needs to be the case that people are turning to AI and saving money by doing so. It should not be the opposite. So there's a there's just a bit more, like I would say, business leadership needed from a product manager working in this space uh, to think about like the hows, whens, and wheres of the problems we tackle, how much money is currently allocated against them, and how much you're going to cost in terms of like those pricey GPT-4 calls and like uh, how they add up depending on what we're doing. Speaking of price, this um, a really interesting dynamic and in, 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 in question I was curious about um, in terms of your pricing model. So the really uh, interesting, I guess, challenging aspect of uh, having a history and legacy products is that you have this help desk product, which is charged on a per seat basis. And then you have Finn, uh, which is charged on a resolution basis. Uh, how, do, how does that work? How do you think, uh, I guess, almost of uh, cannibalization of one versus the other? And then how do you justify in terms of ROI the price to customers? Very much top of mind here. And it's a great time for everyone to just reread The Innovator's Dilemma and to really kind of understand you don't really get a choice in these worlds. Uh, the, like, you know, we can sit here and cross our fingers and hope that AI doesn't happen, but it's happening, right? And uh, and the reality is AI can answer a lot of support questions and it can do it at like a pretty cheap point. And there's no point in pretending that that's not true. So there's an amount of reality that has to be embraced by anyone who's dealing with this tension between the old revenue model and what might be the new revenue model. In practice, not everyone wants to adopt AI full beans today. You know, like people are dipping their toe. So people like will, because of the depth or complexity of their service offering, they might still always have a large support team. Uh, and so we, we need to work out for work out a way for both. In general, like if we charge you say $39 a seat or we charge you a dollar per answer, if that seat, uh, that $39 seat is displaced because the seat is no longer bought because Finn is now answering uh, all of the work that that seat would have been doing, as long as that number is more than 39, we're okay. You know, but we, 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 you, you need to like have a bridge into the future. So we have to like sell in the present where a lot of people aren't necessarily ready for full AI yet, but also have a path forward. And, and we, and like, I think we're okay in all, in, in all scenarios. If all the work goes to the AI or a substantial chunk goes there, we're okay. And our customers are okay. Uh, if it doesn't, they can keep buying seats and we'll continue to make the seats valuable. I, I think that the challenge for startups is to like, I, I would encourage everyone to like, not like, don't rely on hope as a strategy. Like, take what's happening seriously and price for the new world. And for what it's worth, I do think separate to all this, SaaS is going to be a bit more usage-based and metered anyway. I think the, the days of like seats above all are starting to fade away. AI is going to accelerate it. But I think generally speaking, people are kind of realizing that like charging for value uh, is more important than, than charging for empty seats. And for Finn, you charge uh, based on resolutions. So what is that concept? Uh, and is that something that customers understand or need to be educated about in this brave new world? Um, there's a tiny bit of education. Like we actually consider resolution the same way they do, uh, but you just have to explain a little bit. So, so let's say a thousand conversations come into a business. Uh, Let's say Finn only touches 700 of them because it looks at 300 and goes, I don't know what to do with that uh, because maybe it hasn't read the right docs or hasn't been fed the right information or maybe they're gobbledygook or spam or whatever. It doesn't really matter. It's 300 of those it's not touching. That's not relevant. So the first figure we'd quote is our involvement rate, which would be 70% in this case. 70% of the conversations Finn jumps into. That's not what we price for. We price for when Finn has given an answer and the customer has either explicitly said they uh, has either just closed the messenger and gone on and done the thing they wanted to do, or has explicitly said that answer my question. The only thing we don't charge, the only time we won't charge here is if the customer pushes back and says that's not right, this is wrong, and we hand over to a human. That's when we don't charge. Uh, we basically charge when we gave the customer an answer that they saw, 
and they didn't have any follow-up questions, which is exactly how CS uh, reps are measured as well. They're not like no one goes chasing people being like, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? But that's a, that's the piece of education. Uh, most of the time, because Finn's instant, you give you, know, you, you reply, here's how you reset your password. People click the link and go on about their business. What they don't do is come back and say, thank you very much, Mr. and Mrs. Bot. Uh, like uh, in the same way, you don't say thanks to Google after you complete a search query, you know? So I think um, we're got, what we price against is literally what we believe to be the, the purest sort of shredded version of uh, the thing that happens, which is, did Finn answer the question in such a way that no work was put onto your CS team? If so, then fine. We yeah. do report on things like customer satisfaction for Finn users, and our, our customers can see that to make sure that the that the Finn customers aren't more pissed off than the human ones, et cetera. It's a really interesting uh, discussion, like almost like philosophically in terms of like how we measure AI. I think there's a tendency yeah. to hold AI to higher standard. Uh, Absolutely. But, but uh, you know, in, in this case, uh, from a pricing perspective, you hold AI to the same standard as, as a human. So, you know, one way you could go is like, okay, well, you answer the question about how to reset a password, but then track whether the person actually successfully actually did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. did, and that was completely resolved. But uh, no, I think that's very fair for what it's worth uh, that, um, you know, you wouldn't expect AI to do more than than, than, uh, than a human uh, from that perspective. Uh, to your point, we might go there, but it's just, it hasn't be, felt like the most important thing in that, like, it's, you know, once people understand what it's doing, they're like, that's good enough for me. Because, like, most of the time what they're trying to work out is, like, I don't want to buy this tool and still have to, like, deal with the entire workload. And that's the thing they actually care about. And then, I, and then also, I don't want to disappoint or frustrate my customers. So that's why we report on CSAT. And by the way, uh, what is the latest number in terms of resolution rate? I think I read somewhere 41% uh, of, yeah. of, of, of queries. Is that higher now? It's a bit higher. It gets higher every every few weeks. We So we just shipped Finn earlier this week in 40 more languages, and that will kind of give it a higher involvement rate and probably a higher success rate too, because it was probably, you know, speaking bad bad language, like, you know, bad English or whatever in previous cases or whatever. Uh, so it, that number's creeping up. I don't have the, the current one, but like 40-ish is, is roughly where we're at. I will say like that, that kind of hides, like on average, I would be confident any business who turns on Finn will get at least like 25, 30. We have a lot of people getting 70 and 80. Uh, it, it kind of depends on the simplicity of the support function that you're staffing. So if like you have some sort of Pareto style 80-20 for your support queries, as an example, like a utility provider deals with like open an account, close an account, change an address, register a meter reading, whatever, uh, those four or five questions often account for 80-90% of the entire inbound. In those cases, Finn delivers exceptional results, as you guessed, because you can target, you can deliver so much value by just getting really good at four or five things. Um, so so that, like it's... The 40 thing is like is definitely like, you know, it's very, very real. There are just a, there's a lot of cases where if you have a simple, simple enough support function, it can hit some extremely high numbers. As as part of your path towards 100 percent which I assume is uh, the ultimate goal, there, there's a really important concept of, of actions, the, the bot actually taking action. So that's one thing to send a link to reset a password. It's another thing to basically do it for you. Is that is that is that in the spectrum between science fiction and happening today, where does action uh, generated by AI uh, stand? We have, like, internally, we have demoed this, uh, these capabilities. So it's, it's absolutely going to happen, high certainty, and we will definitely do it. Uh, if you recall, like, the sort of the L1 to L5 of support automation, I think actions is probably, like, one level above what we have for sale today. Uh, we are we are we are firmly going to like make that happen too. It, it's specifically important uh, in certain businesses where, um, you know, like let's just say approval or refund requests or whatever. Like we can't go and do them uh, without like having a, a proper like um, way to go and ping APIs. Like the the thing that will for, come before actions will be like third party data lookups. So pulling in for information and relaying it back to customers. So like, why was I charged fifty nine dollars on my credit card? Here's the answer. That type of thing. that's 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 just a read. It's not an action, uh, but. Actions are definitely going to happen in terms of like, you know, it's it's not that hard. Like today, Intercom has a model, has a feature called custom actions, where you can actually offer like click this button to do something, which could be like refund my order or whatever. It's the thing we have to unlock. And it's just, again, it's back to this idea of trust, reliability and guardrails is when are we comfortable letting Finn do that off its own bat or like independently from a human supervision. And, uh, and like we're, we're, you know, I'm very comfortable seeing it in, a, in, a, in months. I can't say if it's two or six, you know, but like uh, actions is like, it's the next sort of chunk of work, if you like. Per personalized uh, answers, then actions, 
then after that you're into proactive and i think then we're really hitting the high 90s uh in terms of percentages i'm curious about uh early patterns around customer adoption uh intercom has Tons of customers. I think I read somewhere twenty-five thousand customers, and right, with yeah. a particular, particular um, representation in the tech startup scale-up uh, kind of community. What, what are you? But equally, Fin is an early product, and it's a, a newish product, and something that people need to uh, get used to. Are you finding any trends in terms of like who's adopting uh, to do what? Uh, you know, this problem versus that problem, this vertical versus that vertical. AI adoption is kind of hilarious. Like I would, I jump on sales calls frequently and some, you know, larger, older institutions can be a little bit like, Hey, we're just about ready to test your summarization feature. We're really excited. And then you could jump on to like, you know, you know, a new recently series B SF startup, or whatever. And they're like, when can Finn answer phone calls for me and do authentication? And we're like, Whoa, you know, I'm like, you know, uh, it's like, so there are different approaches. The, the thing I notice a lot is, um, we like, some people are very wary of AI because, you know, because, you know, human is part of their brand or great service is part of their brand. What we encourage those people to do is just work out a way to dip their toe in. So like, hey, how about if Finn only works with your free customers? How about if Finn only works in the languages you don't speak? How about if Finn only works on the errors that you don't have real-time support? And in that regard, it's kind of an asymmetric upside. It's like, if it works, great, because we couldn't help that customer anyway. And if it doesn't work, well, no worries because we couldn't help that customer anyway, right? So I think you can always get, uh, we can always, how would you say, like, seduce somebody into the full of thin experience by showing them a little bit of value in an area where, where it's kind of risk-free. And I think that's the adoption part we see for like the, the bigger companies who are just more, they're AI curious, but also AI skeptical. Um, and uh, and, like, and that's working genuinely. And then with the startups, as I said, they're like ripping it off the shelves, they're tearing it out of our hands. And they're like, they're like, why can't I point Finn at a YouTube video to read my product about yet? And we're like, yeah, we're working on it, but like, give us a bit of time. So like that, I, I, I will say like, I really firmly believe 2024 will be the year of AI adoption. If like 2022 was the year it was created and 2023 was the year we fleshed it out technically, this is go time in the market, in my opinion. And I think that's why we're, we're excited. We're such an exciting roadmap. We're going to be a pretty loud in market. Everyone will hear about it uh, over the next while. But like, I, I do think this is the time when every business, big or old, bank, government, healthcare, you name it, everyone who's like not supposed to touch this shit, I think they're all going to be forced by the realization of what's possible to start dipping their toes in. And it's going to be an exciting time. So maybe to, um, you know, for the last few minutes to close up this conversation, um, I'd love to switch tax to... Um, the intercom sort of entrepreneurial journey. Um, you know, the last couple of years have been a tough couple of years uh, for the uh, tech ecosystem in general and, you know, B2B enterprise software startups. Everybody's had to adapt. Uh, what did you all do? Uh, it seems like you've had, um, you know, a bunch of like senior changes. Owen came back to be CEO. You have a new president. So what did you, how did you all adapt and become fit, which seems to be the uh, expression of the day? I mean, first of all, I'd say uh, Owen returning was like, uh was the catalyst for all of this. Uh, I think like right sizing costs. So we obviously had to do a riff like every other startup and uh, was out there. Uh, like honestly, like uh, refining the strategy, creating a lot of focus and a lot of urgency behind one thing. So moving away from being a broad tool to being a very focused CS platform that's, that defines the industry. And then, AI, and then obviously pouncing on AI as part of that. I think we also had like a lot of work to do around changing our go-to-market motions, making sure that we're actually accessible and affordable and adoptable by companies big and small. Uh, we did a lot of work there as well. Uh, changed how we kind of you know represent ourselves to the market. Um, spoke to a lot more clear value, uh, and I think um, in general, like the framing I would use with a lot of the startups I've invested in or spoken to is like you have to be everything for somebody, not something for everybody. And I think that's for us like a lot of it. We we want to be business's first and only customer support platform or AI first customer support platform. I think a lot of that is the, most the strategy and a lot of that is like now the positioning and the marketing and even the fact that like we're having this conversation is a byproduct of the focus that I'm created around saying we're going to pick one thing and only do, only do that one thing, only talk about that one thing. I think that's what I'd encourage any startup who's coming, kind of coming out of a um, you know, like a lot of like the, the Zerpy era startups, or whatever, might have like, you know, I think the nature of, of expansive growth is it tells everyone like massively blow up your ambitions and like, you know, think about all the cool things you could do. And I think the, the last year or so has been one of like, do something really well where you know that you can be the best. And, uh, and that's what we've been doing. I think that's like a, 
that's been what we've been all about uh, since I returned. And I think, I think that's honestly has guided this really, really well. And you guys have been at this for a little while. You were, I believe, four co-founders, um, all Irish, uh, but the company was uh, started both uh, in San Francisco and Dublin at the same time. It's, it's a fascinating topic. How do you um, think of that partnership, that long-term relationship between the four of you going through all sorts of different paths and, uh, and, and a journey and um, all the ups and downs. Um, what, what, have you, what have you learned and why has it worked? It worked, I think, because, well, we had worked together before. So, we've, you know, 13 years is intercom, but maybe like 15 or 16 years is the full lifespan of, say, relationship with me and Owen or me, Owen, Karen and David. Um, so I think like it, it, it was founded on a pretty strong foundation. Uh, I think we have always believed in some basic ideas. One is like a uh, hierarchy, like Owen was CEO. I was to like be involved in product. Kieran was CTO, et cetera. We always have really clear who owns what. Um, and I think like that has held us together in, in a load of the journey just because you're never like, there's never power games at play. There's never ambiguity about who should do what. It's always very clear. Everyone knows what their job is, what they should be doing, what they shouldn't be doing, et cetera. I think, so I think like business wise, we've always had that structure. And then, Obviously, it's impossible to work with, work with somebody or for somebody for like 13, 14, 15 years without actually an underlying friendship strengthening that kind of gives you the, the emotional backbone during hard times as well. Uh, so I think that that's like uh, how the, the sort of partnership, if you like, has worked. The other thing I just say is um, the desire, the emotion, like if Intercom was just about making money, we would have like taken the first acquisition offer or something like that. If it was just about fame, we would have quit when we got our first bit of coverage in like the New York Times or some shit like that. Um, or if it was just about raw tech, we, we would have built the thing we wanted to build and be like, ta-da, we're done, right? I think the thing that we're all really passionate about is actually making the internet better and like delivering better customer service online. Um, our, our like mission has always been like make internet business personal, like really make it possible for the internet, like just for doing commerce business online to be actually a really positive experience and and that problem has persisted for like 15 years and probably will for 15 more but like that's the thing that we're like you were like you know joined at the hip and chasing it's like we always you know it's the the curse of a founder is you're both so optimistic about what's possible and then so depressed about what you see in front of you right uh but i think like that's the the the, the permanence the this desire to like make intercom a really impactful, relevant company charging towards better internet. Another really interesting aspect of the journey is that um, you guys have been bicontinental and distributed from the beginning between, again, San Francisco and, and, and Ireland. Um, where, where do you stand today on the whole uh, distributed versus centralized, work from home versus work from the office, Any uh, anything that you've experienced that you could share? So you're correct. We've been distributed forever. So like when when the world went remote in twenty uh, March twenty twenty was it? Uh, we weren't that shocked. And not like me and Owen at the very least. I always had a remote relationship. He was always in San Francisco. I was always in Dublin. So it wasn't like a big oh my god, what do we do now type thing. But I I, I think um you know so like in some sense distribution or distributed offices was always fine for us. Uh, we had those muscles pretty warm. The going remote I did not like personally, and then separately. I think uh, we, we're now like two days a week in the office. And I think um, when I look around the days in the office, there's a lot of like, you know, positives to see. There's people smiling, high-fiving, you know, there's people going for drinks after work. There's people having like stand-up meetings by a whiteboard, really chasing down like tech specs for what we're going to build. And all I see in all that is the stuff that wasn't happening when no one went to the office. So I, I think like I'm a big believer that like face-to-face -face matters, not just for collaboration. It does matter for collaboration. But also, I think it matters a lot for uh, just for like, you know, it, it work is such an, an important chunk of everyone's lives, whether they want it to be or not. The idea that you could do it and have like basically no relationship with people or, or that they'd be just tabs in a browser or, or like faces in a Slack channel. I think it robs us of a real richness that society has to offer, which is like doing stuff with people is a great way to bond with them, to get to know them, to make friends, et cetera. Like the, my heart used to break during Corona because like people would, like, you know, we're in Dublin, Ireland. People would join intercom from all over Europe, relocate to Dublin, Ireland, and then they'd never see their colleagues and they'd be alone because they just moved country. And it's like, what are we doing here? So anyway, so these days it's a lot more uh, exciting just to see the office alive and vibrant. And it's the same in San Francisco too. Um, 
so I'm, I'm definitely a believer like that some like a reasonable amount of face-to-face collaboration or like just meetings meet uh, in-person chats lunches drinks whatever is necessary for like the sort of camaraderie that you need for a team to survive and perform and to enjoy working. Maybe to close, I'm curious about your take on the European startup slash tech scene. You're obviously a very successful entrepreneur, but you're also a very active investor, angel investor, I believe. Um, and you know, there's, there's, especially in the uh, age of AI, there's this uh, rapidly increasing kind of like dominant narrative that all the good things are happening in San Francisco, in, in which you're also headquartered. Uh, what, what is your overall take on, on this, on what's happening in Europe versus the US and what you're excited about or concerned about? I think Europe has never failed at the opportunity to shoot itself in the foot from a tech perspective. Um, I'm probably one of the world's biggest haters of the the cookie banner initiative uh, that has caused all of our websites to basically pop up all sorts of mindless crap that no one reads and call that progress. And somehow people in in the EU celebrated that like like they did something. Um, and I think uh, I'm very worried that we're going to do the exact same thing with with AI, where like AI products will just in Europe have a load of meaningless pop ups. Or that companies just say Europe is just not worth the not worth our time. It's just too hard to do business in. Uh, so like I, I worry a lot about like uh, over legislation, especially things that aren't actually focused on what end users want, but they're instead focused on what legislators think could be, you know, interesting from a legal ruling perspective or whatever. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I think is um, if if I had one criticism of the sort of startup, um, the people who invest a lot of time in creating European startups, I think it's mostly. We're really good at creating lots of startups in Europe. Like there are genuine, I could name like, you know, hundreds or a thousand, maybe maybe not a thousand, but certainly hundreds of like performant, let's just say post 10 million air or credible businesses that are growing and delivering value online or whatever. I think we twist ourselves in knots about the idea that any one of them gets particularly big. Like I don't see a line of sight to a trillion dollar company in Europe, uh, full stop. And I think that's because... Um, governments or the EU or whatever will pounce on it because it seems like just deeply incorrect or whatever. And because of that, I think we'll always be chasing the shadows of Silicon Valley, uh, which is disappointing. But there are some uh, signs of optimism. I think Mistral is going to be exciting. I think it's a really relevant player in, say, uh, in the AI space. And then there are other, like, just in a totally different um, sort of corner, like, there are folks like the team at AMO in France who are building, like, I think a really interesting alternative take on the future of social networking. And I'm really excited to like uh, to see how that plays out too. So there are there's a growing amount of ambition. Usually, it spins out of European founders who sold their previous company for a significant, like let's say, like you know, hundreds of millions to a US company. And I've now realized why did I have to do that? And I think so. I, I hope I hope that we'll see you know Europe support these companies more, encourage them to be, you know, Fortune 10 trillion dollar businesses based in Europe, not penalize them, not legislate them, not banish them to cookie banner AI pop up hell. And uh, and maybe then we'll actually start to like very credibly see a super strong thriving EU, EU tech ecosystem. Right now, as I said, we've got like hundreds of great startups and that's a really necessary start, but it's not sufficient. I really want to see trillion dollar companies. Des, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation. Really appreciate it. Cool. Thanks so much, Matt. I really enjoyed it too.